<clears throat> Great, thank you very much. Yeah, my name is Simon Quincy. Some people call me Simon. Most people call me Quincy. It's great to see you this morning, and uh, welcome if you're new, if you're with us for the first time. Um, I hope you had a really good Easter break. I hope you enjoyed uh, some of that sunshine. I certainly did. I had a nice brunch on Good Friday. That was great. And, uh, and then on Easter Monday as well. I hope you had a good time. And uh, we're back together, and we are going to start a new sermon series, and it's on the topic of sex and sexuality. Now, I'm going to spend a few minutes introducing the topic, and then we're going to go straight into it with the first talk this morning. But the reason we're going to deliver this series is because we want to teach what the Bible says about sex and sexuality. We also want to equip you as followers of Jesus to engage with the world around you in an informed way on the current issues, the things that people are talking about in your school, in your workplace, etc. And our hope and prayer is, as a team, that by the end of it, you will be equipped to speak confidently, with conviction, but most importantly, with love on these topics. And so the four things we're going to look at across four weeks are this. They are talks about why sex and sexuality matter to us and matter to God. How we got to where we are today regarding sex, that's week two. Week three is about whether the good news of Jesus is really good news for everybody. And lastly, we're going to bring a Christian response to transgender to conclude the series. Now, the talks we're going to deliver, they're Bible-based, and they're drawn from a series that was undertaken by Everyday Church in Wimbledon. They're part of Newground, the same church family as us, and they concluded it in autumn 2018. Now, we're aware that over the series, we're not going to have life groups where we, you would typically dig a bit deeper into these topics and kick things around. So I just want to be upfront about it and say that if you want to continue the conversation around anything that we bring up um, as part of this series, then please let me know, let one of the team know, whoever you're most comfortable engaging with. It might be your life group leader, it might be uh, myself, it might be someone else. But we want you to know that these aren't topics that can only be addressed from the front. They're topics that uh, are to be engaged with and talked about. And we are very open to talking with you about them. So we're going to continue. We're going to get straight into the first talk this morning. It's called, it's called Why It Matters. And to start off, I think you will probably agree with me that the world we live in is confused about men, women, sex, and sexuality. You might pick up a morning news feed on your phone or iPad or something like that that has a story in it about how men and women are exactly the same. But then in the same newsfeed, you'll also have a story perhaps about how a man claims to be trapped in a woman's body and just wants out. But they can't both be true at the same time. You might have flicked across the TV schedule at home and seen that there's shows these days like Naked Attraction or Love Island or Big Brother, and they assert that we should have sex with as many people as possible because that's the only way to be happy and we should just treat each other like pieces of meat. But then on social media, you might see in the feed there that people are outraged and disgusted, quite rightly, at how men are treating women like pieces of meat. And there's somewhat of a paradox here. The two things don't add up. It's like there's confusion. We are pushing towards one and then the other. And in this confused world, even children are exposed to the stuff we are addicted to, like Celebrity Love Island, perhaps, 
Maybe children as young as seven or eight would sit with their family and watch it, and then they'd conclude at the end, well, you know, they've seen this kind of stuff, but kids will be kids. They'll just do what they want. But in stark contrast to this being an interesting and fascinating and helpful thing, the Children's Society produced a report in 2018 in August called the Good Childhood Report, which describes that letting kids be kids has some pretty heavy consequences. It described that 9% of 14-year-old boys self-harmed across the last 12 months, and that 22% of 14-year-old girls self-harmed across that same period. And if you look at the big picture across the entire content that we have on all forms of media, you could say it's like a massive experiment we're doing to see how people react. And you could also say that it's not going very well, and that people are ending up getting hurt and confused. And so what does the church have to say about this, you might ask? Well, sadly, I think we need to confess that as a church nationwide, we might have shied away from this subject in the past or changed the subject completely rather than tackling it head on with the truth from God, from his scripture. And that's what we're going to do across this series. We're going to bring you these Bible-based talks and we're aware that you may not like all of it. We're aware that it's countercultural, but it's so important that we explain clearly from the Bible what it actually says on sex and sexuality. Another way that the church has been quiet on this is to not want to offend people. And that, that's a good reason, if you like. That's a positive reason for being quiet. But if you look at it from a different angle, it's also a negative reason because this silence is attached to a nervousness about being labelled as intolerant and called names. And I, I have to say I'm sensitive to that. I'm a, I'm a relational person. I love, I love it that I get to be friends with lots of people and I enjoy those relationships and I really don't want to offend anyone and I'm, I'm very sensitive to that. If you know me well, you, you would know that. Uh, you know, if I find out I've hurt you, I'm very quick to get back to you and be like, I'm so sorry, I've done something wrong. So I'm sensitive to that, but... I'm also aware that Jesus is working on me to become more like him, and he delivers the truth in love. And that's what I want to be like. And so where the church has been quiet, the Bible has always been pretty straightforward and clear, and not quiet and not squeamish about this subject. They talk about sex and sexuality in the Bible, which is a good thing, and they're honest, and we want to be like them, the authors of the Bible. Now, there is a risk when we're explaining what the Bible says, and we are taking a risk by doing this series. We're putting our head above the parapet, and in, that, in taking that risk, we need to be really clear from the start. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, then we are not expecting you to live the way that Jesus tells you to live in line with sex and sexuality. Equally, we're not telling you you have to believe this or that you have to live like you believe it either. In fact, we're expecting you to not believe it and not live according to the Bible if you're not a follower of Jesus. But if you are a follower of Jesus, we want you to understand what it means to submit your entire self to him, including your sex, your sexuality, and your body, to allow God to be Lord in all rather than not Lord at all. And if you're following Jesus, then we want to tell you honestly and lovingly and caringly what it means to follow him. Romans 12 verses 1 to 2 give us a really helpful summary of this. It's Paul writing 
to the Romans. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. We're going to help you comprehend what that means, how to offer your body to God as an act of service, and then be able to share some great news with others. And that great news is that God answers the questions our confused world is asking. Now, we might be acutely aware of the problems that are around and across the world at the moment. There's documentaries left, right, and center, people speaking out. There's a lot of voices, but we need answers from Scripture, not just someone to point out more of the issues and problems that are going on. So let's find out what Jesus has to say on the subject. And it is really important to understand and respond to him. But again, I'll say it again, if you're not a follower of Jesus, we're not telling you you have to live this way. We're going to try and persuade you that it's a good way to live, but we're assuming you're not going to. However, followers of Jesus, we want to show you what it means to be different when it comes to following Jesus. And different is scary sometimes. But without any further ado, let's go to Matthew chapter 19, one of the Gospels, one of the four biographies of Jesus. They talk about him and the things he said. We're going to read Matthew 19 verses 3 to 12. And this is Jesus speaking on sex and sexuality. It says, some of the Pharisees came to him to test him. That's Jesus. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason the man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. So we're going to look back over these verses and just pull a few things out that Jesus teaches us. The first thing that I notice about this scripture is that Jesus isn't embarrassed to talk about sex. It may be the case in, in your life that in your household, your parents' or grandparents' generation, they haven't talked about this openly and in a discussion or in an environment like that, but Jesus is up for the conversation and that's the first thing that I grasp from this scripture. He's willing to talk about it. He's not squeamish. He's not concerned. He's not scared. He comes to be, they come to test him, and this is how he responds. And he's speaking into a context here, and context is really important. In the first century where Jesus is speaking, they're not asking questions about dating and Tinder and Grindr. They're asking about marriage and divorce and adultery. In the culture back then, it was very different to us. Uh, girls would get married around 12 years old, and men uh, only as old as 18, 19, or 20. And in other words, people then were getting married when they became spiritually mature, and Jesus meets them where they're at in their time and in their 
culture and goes to answer their questions that they're asking, but he can also answer ours. And he says to them what he would say to us. He, he answers them by saying, haven't you noticed how it was in the beginning? Now, we'll come on to what he's talking about in a moment, but you might be aware that historically, traditionalist churchgoers and progressive liberals, they probably clashed on sex and sexuality. Traditionists might point to the 50s and say there was a golden era of sexual purity where everything was right and in order, but progressive liberals would go, well, no, that was awful. Look how far we've come since then. And there has been some wonderful progress since then. Gender equality, exposing the ways that men abused and oppressed women. But actually, we don't need to follow either party on this. We need to, again, go back to what Jesus is saying about this. And he's saying we don't need to go back to the 50s. We don't need to look at the time since then or even right now. We need to go back to the beginning to find out what God's plan for humankind was. And so that's what he does. He goes back to creation where the creator made them male and female. And he did so making two different halves of a complementary pair. Now, that's not to suggest that all men have to act in a certain way and, and be a particular way, and all women have to act a certain way and be a particular way. Stereotypes are, are not helpful in that regard. But it is to make the point that gender is a bigger divider than your race. It's a bigger factor in your identity than your race. For example, a black man and a white man have more in common as men than a black man and a black woman have together as people. That's the point. And to understand sex and sexuality, we need to get that it's God who invented the human race. Men and women created differently to be united together for God's glory. Not to fight each other and push back against each other, but more to work like a lock and a key. To cooperate, to flourish. Jesus talks about this way of living when he's pointing back to Genesis. And he talks about men and women coming together as one flesh. And that means having sex. And he points to sex as something that is more than just a physical act. And we know this deep down. We know that sex is more than a, a physical thing. It's deeper than that. Because we, we know, for example, that rape is much more serious than physical assault. We know that cheating on your husband or wife is much more serious than cheating on an exam at school. We know that sex is different. We know that it's not just two lumps of meat coming together. Jesus goes even further than this. He says it spiritually. He says that somehow God is involved in this act, in this wonderful act. And there's a sacredness to it. And we know this deep down. We, we do, really. We, we don't just talk about good sex and bad sex. We talk about sexual perversion. And we talk about sexual abuse. And when sex is abused, when it's perverted, when it's inflicted on someone, something inside of us goes, that is wrong. That is just not right. We, that is just not right. Now, when I was growing up, there was a show on TV called Blind Date. Does anyone remember Blind Date? With Silla Black and R. Graham, that guy. And he would come along and, youth, in case you don't know, Silla Black hosted this show and there would be a screen that would block a person from three other people, and they'd all sit on a stool. And Graham would describe these people to the person behind the screen, and they would choose, oh, I think I think like the sound of number three. I'll have number three, please. And they would 
slide back the screen, and it'll be, oh, you're, there's a person on the other side, as if they never knew that there was a person on the other side. And, they, and off they went on a date. And I thought this was hilarious when I was growing up, because they went on a blind date. I was like, who goes on a blind date? That's ridiculous. I only went and met my wife because I went on a blind date. <laughs> it's as if God has a sense of humor about that. But just like things have changed and my attitude has changed since I was a teenager, blind date has also sadly changed. Blind date has turned into naked attraction. And I don't watch this show, just in case you're concerned about me, um, you know, but on the show, couples come on and they pick someone to have a threesome with. And they all might stand there and say, well, you know, as long as everyone's happy, then it must all be okay. But when you get that, when you hear that, you think, hang on, surely you just sound like you're trying to convince yourself that that really is okay. And I think there is that something in us that says, it's really not. And that's something in us that says, this is wrong. It's the voice of God. It's him. It's your conscience. Jesus talks really openly about the power of sex and our sex lives and the huge damage that can be done when we take sex out of the context it's meant to be in. Just like if you have a lovely fireplace at home, I know a couple of you do, and it's wonderful. Because when the fire is in the fireplace, it's warm and it's bright and you're drawn to it and it's good. But if you took that fire out of that fireplace and put it on your living room floor, your whole house is going to burn down. When things are out of context, it's damaging and dangerous. And that's why Jesus talks about sex in holy terms. And it's why he even goes to the extent of saying that God hates divorce. Now, I don't want you to think I'm having a go at you if you've been divorced, because I'm really, I'm not. In Isaiah chapter 50, verse 1, God describes himself as a victim of divorce. He says, I married the people of Israel, and they rejected me, and I sent them away. This is just to point out what Jesus is saying regarding sex and how it, when it's out of context, it's really, really dangerous and damaging. Now, he goes on to say your, your view of sex will change your view of many other things. Your view of marriage will change. Your view of sex outside marriage will, will change and divorce and remarriage. And I, I just wonder whether you have taken time lately just to think about how do I view sex? How do you view sex yourself? And what do you see it adds. And there are some of the things that we'll cover in the next few weeks, divorce, remarriage, singleness, etc. But your view of sex adjusts and changes how you see those things. So it's really important to get an understanding clear in your mind. Now, another thing that Jesus says is that actually taking sex out of context is worse than being single. Now, I know that there's some people who are really comfortable with being single, got some great friends who are, and Jesus commends you and commends them for that. But others feel that there's a huge stigma around being single, and they struggle with it. And I, I can say from my own experience, when I was single, uh, if you came to this church about nine years ago, I think all I talked about was getting married. I don't know how you listened to me from the front up here. Tell us another story about someone you met, Quincy. No, really, stop. Uh, but... That was a problem for me. I idolized marriage and made it into something it shouldn't have been. And for others, they might still be struggling with singleness. And, you know, I'll tell you the whole story about uh, me and that singleness thing if you want to another time, but it's a reality. Some people do, and particularly in a church context as well. But it's interesting that Jesus is teaching into a culture where being single means essentially you're an outcast. Essentially, you're a, a weirdo 
And he uses this word eunuch, and that might not offend you or me right now, but back then it would have been entirely offensive to, this, to his hearers. And yet then, if you take a step back, you see that Jesus is a 30-year-old single person who's saying, I am the perfect revelation of how the human race is meant to live. Look at me, I'm 30 and I'm single, he says. And Jesus has some stuff to teach us on that. He's got things to say about that, and that's going to be week three of our series. So we've looked at a few of these verses, and we've recognized that Jesus highlights the importance of sex, the fact that it matters a great deal, the fact that it's more than just a physical act and that it was created by God to be taken seriously, and it matters far more than you might have thought of or experienced in church. And now we're going to go back to the beginning of the Bible. We're going to go back to Genesis, just like Jesus points his hearers then. He's going to point us as well. And we're going to spend a bit of time in Genesis 1 and 2 exploring the glory of what it teaches us about sex and sexuality. And I want us to grasp that we're going to look back there, but since then it has been cheapened and changed and distorted and made, something, made into something far from what it was originally. And we're going to use three headings, and they're in your notes that you should have uh, with you, um, to explain what the Bible says if you are a man or if you are a woman, and about the way that you can glorify God through sex and sexuality. And we're going to start with creation. We're going to start in Genesis. And so God creates the universe and steps back and says, it's good. But he doesn't say that it's good because he's done a good job, like I would if I'd made a really good cake. He steps back and says, it's good, because it reflects something of who he is. It doesn't reflect, though, a solitary God on a cloud somewhere. No, it reflects Yahweh, the Trinitarian God of the Bible, Father, Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, creating together. And then they come, having created many things, to creating the human race. And there's a bit of a giveaway sentence to show you that the entire Trinity is involved in creation. It says in 1 Genesis 26 that God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And in creating, God is revealing himself. And everything he's made up until this point, up until the humans, has has had two halves that are kind of opposites in a way, sort of night and day, sea and dry land, days for work, days for Sabbath, sun and moon, all different, but they go together. And then God's having a good time over this. He's stating and rejoicing that this reflects me. This is all good. And then in verse 27, it says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And it's at this point that the pattern changes. Day, night, sea, land, all good. But man and woman... Two complementary halves coming together, designed to unite together as two, yet one are created. And it's similar to the way that God, the Father, and Jesus, the Holy Spirit, proceeds from them. Well, in the same way, man and woman would come together, an offspring would proceed from them. And God looks at the human race. He recognizes that they are the pinnacle of his creation. And I just sense a really big pause before he says this, but he just goes... It's very good. (laughs) It's got emphasis to it. And God created humans, not to live for themselves, but to reflect his glory. To the extent that there is no place in the Bible where it says you need to clean up your sex life. There's nowhere 
where it says you need to try and make sex a holy thing. No. Instead, it says, like in Hebrews 13.4, keep the marriage bed pure. Keep the place, the context of marriage pure for sex. It's up to humans to maintain that. God calls man and woman to live together, to reflect his glory in their sex and sexuality. And that's why it matters if you're a Christian, because this reflects the gospel. This is the main thing. Men and women giving glory to God by embracing who they are, who they were created to be, and living together with absolute equality between the two. It means there's no room for either to oppress the other. I mean, a man might be physically stronger, but there's no room for him to abuse women. They are both made to reflect the glory of God. Equal, but different. Now, the woman's described in Genesis 2.18 as the man's helper, and there's been a lot of fuss made over that word, and the fuss normally points to the fact that people think this, this is making her inferior to him, but it's absolutely not. The word helper here is the same word they use in Exodus 4 and across the Psalms to describe God being the helper to the human race. Entirely necessary. Not lesser in any way. And I think you'd probably agree that without God, the human race probably wouldn't get very far at all. Now, the reality is that in the Garden of Eden, we're left with a stark truth that men and women can't reflect God's glory without one another. Now, in recent years, you might have seen uh, TV shows where they've pitched the genders against each other. I particularly like uh, The Island with Bear Grylls. There was a year where they did that one year, and there's quite a lot of outrage about it. But if you've ever seen uh, one of those shows where it's gender versus gender, there is uh, a kind of veneer or a pride embodied by people on either side, which essentially makes them say, my gender is the best. But beneath that veneer, there's this unrelenting falsehood that one gender is better than the other. And that's really not the case. Contestants know it. Producers know it. We know it. But they try and persuade us of this untruth that one is greater than the other, and they compete against each other rather than complement each other. And it's kind of uncomfortable to watch, but at the same time, it's kind of addictive. You know, you kind of want to know who's going to win, but it's really an untruth. It's really something, a deception that we're led to believe. They're equal, but different. Now, if our perspective might be that one is better than the other, the gospel comes around and changes this. The gospel helps me, for example, know that Sophie is not subservient to me as my wife, but instead that she is my equal and that she's my best friend. And that we were never designed to treat each other badly. We were never designed for anything to do anything negative to each other. We were designed to reflect God's glory together. And I think we probably all know that sexism is the opposite of this. And we need to be wary we're not pushed towards it by the world or even each other, because once again, we need God to remind us, to help us to renew our minds using the truth of Scripture. But when we understand creation, we understand the equality and the complementarity of men and women, and how with each other we glorify God, as we were designed to do. But sadly, as we have mentioned so far, there is confusion, and it's rife across the world, and there's so much pain and anguish in our society caused by humans isolating themselves, taking themselves away from community, rather than coming into it with 
us and others. And so I just want to look briefly at what Jesus is saying about how he, the Father, and the Holy Spirit created the world and created sex for one context only. You see, God made man and woman, and he made them to come together. And when they come together, he wanted to use sex like glue. He wanted to use that glue for people who had committed themselves to each other, people who'd said things like, I'm going to be with you until the day you die. Whatever comes along, I'm going to stick with you. I'm not going to rip myself away from you. And I'm going to try and use this little bit of tape that's sticking my lectern together. Oh, dear. Look at that. Just to illustrate this. So if man and woman come together like this, and sex is the glue, when they try to unpick themselves from one another, that's what happens. People get shredded when they try and undo the superglue that is essentially sex that has held them together. And that's why it's safe for that context where people are absolutely committed to one another in a marriage and not used anywhere else. And it's painful. It's painful when sex is used in the wrong way and taken out of its context, the right context. And it's as damaging as giving your children superglue and saying, go and brush your teeth with that. It can have that kind of effect. And as a society, it's like we've taken this superglue. In fact, as humanity, we've taken this superglue, the strongest superglue in the universe, and used it incorrectly. And Jesus says that is not right. He says it's not right that the average 12-year-old boy has seen more naked women than his grandfather saw in a lifetime. He says it's not right that when you're on social media, you see semi-naked, naked people, and it just leads you straight to comparison. He says that's not right either. He says, no, there's a sacredness about sex and nakedness. It's used to reflect God's glory in the context of a marriage. But in the wrong context, is horribly destructive. So Jesus points us back to the beginning, to the way since it's gone wrong as well since then. And those are some of the things we'll touch on during the rest of the series. Number two is redemption, because Jesus doesn't just point us back to the beginning, he points us also to Adam. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of what is called the better Adam. And you can read about it in 1 Corinthians 15. You see, Adam in the Garden of Eden at the very beginning, he didn't get it right. He blew it. He was meant to take the lead and take responsibility for Eve, his wife, but instead he abdicated his responsibility. And Jesus, in contrast, comes along and doesn't let his bride down. He doesn't abdicate and abandon them like a kind of Homer Simpson character would. He and the church come together as one, and yet there's nothing sexual about it. Jesus' desire for his church and for the human race to know him intimately, just like a husband and wife do, and Jesus comes intending to do all that the Adam of Genesis failed to do. And rather than blaming human beings for their sin, Jesus, while being crucified, speaks out over them and says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He takes that position of Adam, taking responsibility, taking the world's sin on himself in that moment so that we would be reconciled to him through the cross. 
And it's not as if Jesus looked at the original plan of men and women in Genesis and then went, I'll tell you what, we'll just scrap that and we'll start again. No. He said, I'm going to redeem this. I'm going to redeem sex and sexuality, men and women, through the cross, through what he did on that cross and his death and his burial and his resurrection speak to how he has now achieved this and reconciled us to himself. Now, the good news is that having done that, Jesus wants your sex and sexuality to become a joy to you, a way to glorify him. And for the apostle, we're going to refer to him again. He speaks to the Ephesian Christians, and he points them to a way that married people can do this. I'm going to read you Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, and then comment on it. It says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of, with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle, or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. We are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Paul here is teaching us to understand that if we get God's plan for creation and humankind that Jesus has come to redeem, then we can spend our lives worshipping and glorifying him alongside each other as men and women. And Paul highlights Husbands and wives here, he says, husbands, come on, lead your wives lovingly, gently, not abdicating responsibility. And he says to wives, follow your husband equal, but following and not despising him. I think it was The Incredibles 2, there was a quote from it that was a part where one of the characters said, come on, it's so easy, even a man could do it. That's not what we're called to do. That's despising the opposite sex. And it's not a helpful attitude. Now, we want to live in a way that displays and models and honors God's glory, a way that shows that we have been redeemed as people, that we would show a confused world how Jesus has gone about redeeming sex and sexuality. And if you are married, then God gives you that example. But if you're not married, if you're single, then you can turn to 1 Timothy 5, 1b to 2, which says this, treat younger men as brothers older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Now, that's a clear instruction for single people to be entirely counter-cultural. And typically in a youth context over the years, um, I've been asked quite a few good questions about dating and so on. And one of the typical questions is, how far can we go? Can we do this? Can I kiss my girlfriend that way? Can we sleep in a bed together as long as we don't do anything? Obviously, if you're sleeping in a bed together, 
You're doing something. You're in a bed together. There's only one reason you would be there. You're not there just to have a cup of tea and read the paper. You're there for something else. But I would point them to this scripture. I'd say, well, the thing you just described to me that you're asking whether you're allowed to do or not, would you do that with your sister? Would you do that with your brother? At which point, teenagers are like, that's a horrible thing. Why would you say that? But that's the reaction we want to see. Because this is the extreme to which single people need to honor and respect each other, whether they're men or women. Treat young men and young women as brothers and sisters. That's the instruction that they get from Paul. And this is a great thing. You get to glorify God with your body and honor him. It's a privilege. Married husbands get to live sacrificially towards their wife, like Jesus on the cross, laying down their lives for them. And married wives get to be like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, that even though everything in Jesus said, I want to go a different way, he said, not my will, but your will be done. That's what wives get to be like that. And single people in a similar way get to lay down everything, to put all their focus into God. It's a glorious thing that they get to do. They're not divided between a husband and wife. They get to focus on him. So we're going to conclude now. and We're going to look back just briefly at what we covered today. We've got three more weeks on this same topic. First, we looked at Jesus. He's the one that Christians follow, and he's not scared to talk about sex and sexuality. He's not squeamish. And if you still got questions, if questions have arisen from today, come and see me, come and see some of the team. We're happy to talk about it and the things that Jesus says. Then we looked at the original plan, creation. We looked at men and women glorifying God through union under him, but that was broken by sin in the Garden of Eden, a bit like a puzzle with its pieces that get scattered everywhere. That's kind of what happened in the Garden of Eden. But then along comes Jesus. In the midst of our confusion, trying to find which piece finds the right part to make this big picture of a puzzle back together, Jesus comes along and he's got the image in his hand and he redeems it. He redeems God's plan for creation by laying down his life on the cross for us, dying and then being resurrected as we spoke about last week. And lastly, we looked at how men and women can worship God when they understand God's plan for creation. And they understand how Jesus has redeemed it and how sex and sexuality can be a way of glorifying and worshiping God, no matter what our age or stage. No matter how young or old or you might be, whether you're married or whether you're single, it doesn't matter. You can glorify God with your sex and sexuality. We're going to conclude there. I think I'm just going to pray and then I'm going to hand back to Dale. Father God, I thank you for everything you have spoken to us about this morning. And uh, Lord, I just want to lift up Everybody here who's listening, who's tuning in to your Holy Spirit and what you're saying, and invite you to glorify yourself, God, however that looks, whatever that means, God, help us understand, reveal things that we don't quite get yet to you, God. And I pray that over this series, we would be protected as a church, that as we stand before you and as we speak the truth of Scripture to those around us and aim to glorify you, that you would give us the words to say, if people ask us about this kind of thing or ask us about anything we move into on this series, God, be with us, I pray. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen.